All right, Remnant, how we doing? Excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If, if you're a guest, I'm just really glad you're here. Uh, I hope you find this to be a safe place to, to sort of explore whatever the next step is in your journey. Uh, many of us have come uh, to a place much like this. Um, we, we, we were in our lives, and, and for many of us, I know, I know for me, uh, I was just going through doing what I thought was best. I, I, was, I was following what I thought would be best, and, and, and my life ended up not where I really wanted it to be. And so I began looking for answers. And what I discovered was, much like many people, is that I wanted to learn about God. And truthfully, I wanted to learn about Jesus mainly so I could dismiss him and move on to something else. But what I discovered was when I began with an open heart to really explore the word, to, to look at this book and to, with an open heart ask God to reveal himself to me, I discovered that while I was gaining a lot of information, at the same time I was developing a relationship. And, and I couldn't explain it, but this God began to impact my life. And I found other people, and they said the same thing. And, and so every week, we just come back here, and we surrender a little bit more, and he changes us a little bit more. And, and every week, we just try our best to surrender to him as Lord. And about six months or so, God began to put on my heart that we need to talk about what's going on in the world. That, that we need to start talking and really focus on what's really happening in the world today. W without the craziness, without the huge speculation, without all the, the end times apocalyptic explosions, we just need to read the Word of God and apply it to our lives. And as I began processing this with God, and as I began to start getting ready to share it with you, it became obvious to me that that this verse in Ephesians is going to be the verse that we're going to focus on throughout this series. And what it says is our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. What we're going to learn in this series is that what's going on in our world is much bigger than our world. There are spiritual things happening around us. And throughout Scripture, God over and over and over tells us, will you please pay attention? Will you wake up? Will you notice what's happening around you spiritually? Because the world you live in is simply a battleground. And what's happening here is much bigger. And, and we have this sort of understanding, don't we? As you talk to people on the street, as you go through your life, you see people who are very freaked out about the future. They're going anywhere they can go to try to find answers. Tarot cards, psychics, horoscopes, uh, anything they can think of. Looking at tea leaves and astrology, just trying to get some sense of peace about where we're headed. And truthfully, there's a reason for that, because inside of us, we have this sense that things aren't exactly going the way we hoped they would go. There's a part of us that, that begins to understand deep within us that we're headed towards something. Some kind of big event. We... We get the sense that our planet can't sustain itself much longer, that where we're headed is not a place of peace and harmony, but yet there's going to be some event that happens. In fact, people are prepping now more than they've ever prepped in their entire lives. They're prepping for all kinds of things. It's interesting when you watch on TV, you, they ask people, why are you prepping? It's everything from we're going to get hit by an asteroid to an electromagnetic pulse to a moral implosion, biological weapons, terrorism, race wars, economic wars, a virus. We live in a world now where a virus that starts in a little community of 10 people in a nowhere place in the world could wipe out the population in about eight days. We're that interconnected. And we all have this sense that, that there's a sense of anxiety or foreboding or concern about the future. And yet there are some people who acknowledge all those things but yet seem to have a sense of internal peace about it. They don't like it. They're not encouraging it, but they recognize that something bigger is going on in this world than us. That there is a cosmic event happening between God and the forces of evil, and the world is the battle zone. And that what's happening is spiritual as much as it is physical. 
And most of those people would tell you that, yeah, we think maybe all those events are going to happen. Maybe every one of them. Because this book that we read, where we believe God wrote us his message, says there's going to be a time of tribulation like nothing we've ever seen before, and he wants us ready for it. It's human nature to fear what we don't understand, right? I mean, if we don't understand something, we develop fear. Particularly if we think we should be in control and we can't seem to control whatever's happening in our lives. And yet, decade after decade, year after year, day after day, people have found a sense of peace, a sense of awareness, and a truth in some ancient manuscripts. And in those manuscripts, they began to hear the voice of God. And they believe, me included, that they can know the future because God has revealed it to us in advance. And because of that, their fear is, placed not, is, not, is replaced not with anxiety. Their fear is, is that other people won't get it. It's a concern. God has revealed to us in his word what's going to happen. And it's like we just have to go around and tell people, wake up. It's, it's going to happen. Now, you may have come here tonight and, and you don't believe in God. You don't believe in the Bible. You think this is all crazy. Believe me, I have been there. I started out going to a church to laugh at people who were so weak that they needed to have a crutch. And I ended up on my face surrendering to the most incredible God who's completely transformed my life. So I get it. You don't have to believe in the Bible. You don't have to agree with anything I say. But something has drawn you here to this room tonight or maybe online. And there's some part of you deep within perhaps that's a bit curious about what's happening around us. Because no matter how much you try to discount it, it's just obvious there's something going on. And I'm not concerned about it because I know God will reveal himself in the Bible to you when your heart's ready. So I'm not asking you to agree with anything I say tonight. What I do want you to understand is why so many of us who have spent time in this book, who have spent time on our knees praying, are so convinced that something is about to happen. This book is a collection of ancient manuscripts written over 1,500 years by probably more than 40 authors, most of whom never knew each other. It's a book that claims the author is God. It is God's story of him and man. Crazy, right? I mean, people believe this book was written by God. I mean, the God who created the universe. If you believe in that God, he wrote this book. Now, years ago, I was searching for answers. And I decided it was time to figure out if this Jesus thing was real or not. So I began reading the Bible with a heart focused and for the first time in my life actually open to the idea that maybe, just maybe, what people said about this book was true. And I began reading the book of John. And I came across a verse that made me start thinking. Here it is, John 14, 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. God says, look, I'm telling you stuff in advance. I'm going to tell you stuff that only God would know. So that when it happens, you'll know this book wasn't written by some man. And even with my skeptical heart, I couldn't ignore that kind of evidence. How could 40 authors over 1,500 years describe the same events that haven't happened yet with extreme detail and internal consistency if God didn't direct every word they wrote. But I was a scientist. I wasn't going to just blindly believe that God wrote this book. I wanted God to prove it to me. Surely, if God was able to, pre or whoever wrote this book, was able to predict something that would happen years later and exactly happened the way they said it was going to happen... That would be something, wouldn't it? Particularly if it happened more than once. I mean, if, if somebody predicted 2,000 years in advance that a very specific detail would happen, and it happened more than once, man, that's incredible. 
Well, it turns out that the number of separate prophetic topics in the Bible isn't just a few, it's 737. In fact, prophecy or the prediction or the foretelling of the future represents 27% of the entire Bible. Over one-fourth of this book is trying to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Okay. So if these 737 individual prophecies were obvious, wouldn't be that hard, would it? The sun will rise in the morning. There's one. Water is wet. There's two. The moon will never become a square. That's three. I mean, if those are the kind of prophecies in this book, then this whole thing's a joke. Well, it turns out that most of the prophecies in this book were about a man. A God-man who would come to earth. Literally, God would step into his creation. And he would come here for the sole purpose of reuniting us in relationship with him and paying a price for our sins that we couldn't pay on our own. Over 333 prophecies about this Messiah are in this book. There are 300 references to him coming the first time. Let me rephrase that. There are over 300 references to him coming to us, both first and second. One out of every 30 verses in the Bible talks about this God-man, the Messiah, coming to earth. It's mentioned in 23 of the 27 New Testament books, and Jesus himself refers to that true event 21 times. In the Old Testament, there's 1,527 passages that refer us to what's called the second coming of Christ. For every time the Bible mentions the first coming of Christ, it mentions the second coming eight times. People are told to get ready for the return of Christ over 50 times in the Bible. The Bible tells us that the Messiah will come first time to show us God and to reveal how much he loves us and to pay for our sins and to take our place on the cross, our punishment. And then he'll die and he'll resurrect. And then there's going to be a time that no one knows how long that's going to be. And then he's going to step back into creation and judge the world for those who have rejected what he's done. So I thought, okay, this should be easy. Did the Messiah come exactly as predicted the first time? Did he do exactly what the Bible said he would do? How many of those predictions about his first coming were actually true? Well, it turns out that Jesus fulfilled without a single error over 300 prophecies in his lifetime on earth. He fulfilled them exactly and even down to the craziest of details. Many of these prophecies were completely out of his control. In fact, many of the prophecies made no sense to the person writing them. Think about that. You're writing a letter or a book. You don't know you're writing scripture. And all of a sudden you get this feeling, this movement, this compulsion to write something down that makes no sense to you. Describing events that you could never really imagine because they're not in your world. They're for a time much later. And yet they wrote them down. Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Let me just give you some examples. His birth. He fulfilled prophecy, born of a virgin, tribe of Judah, descendant of King David, from Galilee, born in Bethlehem, birth announced to wise men who would bring gifts, born where infants would be slaughtered, escaped to Egypt, Lamb of God announced to shepherds, preceded by a star in the sky. That's just his birth. His life... Prophet said he would be rejected by the Jewish people. He'd have a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and they even nailed it down to the exact day that he came in, writing of all things, they said it would be a donkey. Incredible miracles that could not be believed. He would be praised by little children. He would be betrayed by a friend, not just betrayed, but for 30 exact pieces of silver, not gold silver. His death on a cross that hadn't even been invented yet. Surrounded by scoffers who would, of all things, divide his clothes without cutting them up. 
They would gamble for them, the Bible says. He would be silent before his accusers. He'd be pierced in his side, but his bones would not be broken, which was the custom. Pierced in his hands and feet, crucified between two criminals, given vinegar to drink, ridiculed by his enemies, thirsty on the cross, and he would commend his spirit to the Father. And crucifixion hadn't even been thought of when they wrote that down. His resurrection on the exact day he said he would resurrect. Buried with the rich, appears to many, reveals the scriptures, ascends to heaven, leaves us the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled over 33 specific and exact prophecies in the single day that he died on the cross. And all of that was about his first coming to earth, and not one of it was wrong. So if every prediction about his first coming was literally and specifically accurate, and the second coming is mentioned eight times more often, I can have pretty good confidence that this collection of ancient manuscripts will reveal to me what's to come and to prepare me for it, and you as well. But, but maybe, maybe they just got it right on the Messiah guy. I mean, maybe somehow they just, I don't know, hit it right every time on this one guy. Well, it turns out that there are prophecies in the Bible about a lot of other things. In 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah wrote that there would be a Medo-Persian king by the name of Cyrus. He predicted the rise of King Cyrus, the deportation of people to Babylon, and their return to their homeland 160 years before it ever happened. In 530 B.C., the prophet Daniel predicted that there would be four great Gentile powers in the history of the world, and no more than four. And he named them in order thousands of years before they happened. He said the first one would be Babylon. Sure enough, Babylon at one point ruled the entire known world. The second one would be Persia. Sure enough, they ruled the entire world. The third one, Greece with Alexander the Great. And sure enough, it ruled the whole world. And the last one was the Roman Empire. And since that time, there hasn't been a single empire that has ruled the entire world. Many have tried, but none have succeeded. And the Bible tells us that none will. The prophet Daniel predicted to the exact day, the exact day that the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem at the temple. And on the day he predicted, Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives on a donkey riding into the city. Do you know why everybody was waiting for him? with palm leaves because the prophets had said it would happen on that day they were ready for the Messiah they knew he would come around 630 BC the prophet Jeremiah predicted that the wicked people of Judah those people in Jerusalem would be taken captive by their enemies the Babylonians and that that captivity would last for exactly 70 years want to guess what happened the Babylonians came in and held them in captivity for 70 years. 737 prophecies, and they've, those that have been fulfilled so far, which is the majority, have over 100% dead-on accuracy. Now, I don't know about you, but what that told me about this book is that God wrote it. it told me three things. This book is written by God. This book must then be true about everything because God can't lie. And I want to know what this book says about the future. Because it's my future and it's your future. Jesus said he's going away and he's coming back. What he calls his second coming. What does God say about his return? Well, welcome to the study of end times. So we're about to embark on a journey to learn what God says about the future. But I want to put up a few guardrails for our discussions over the next few weeks. First, we have to be careful to avoid sensationalism. Sometimes in our desperation to make sense of what's happening in our world, we're too open to sensationalistic claims. Date setters. People who try to identify the Antichrist. People who try to make every earthquake, every disease, every disaster a conflict and a sign of the end times. 
For many, everything that happens is a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. The problem is, when everything's a sign, then nothing actually becomes a sign. We must make sure that we view current events through the light of the Bible, rather than looking at the Bible through the light of current events. Second, we have to avoid the opposite of sensationalism, which is scoffing at the signs of the time. Many today react negatively to any discussion, any sermon, anything that talks about end times. They say it's foolish and unwarranted to look for or even talk about end time scenarios because there's too many options and we can't understand it. So we do what we always do with that. We go to scripture. Look at the words of Jesus. He answered them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus clearly expected his followers to be able to see, understand, and recognize the signs that were going on around them. Third, we need to embrace an understanding of the complexity of this topic. We also need to understand our human limitations when looking at a book as complicated as the book of Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel, and others. What we can agree on as Christ followers is that Jesus died, resurrected, is in heaven, and is coming back. And he will come back to judge, and he will come back, and people will resurrect. We all agree on that. After that, people have different views, different opinions based on how they've chosen to interpret Scripture. We're going to do with Scripture what we've done in every Bible study we've ever done. We're going to look at it literally, and we're going to look at what God says, and we're going to acknowledge that some people may not agree with every detail, and that's okay, because we all love Jesus. And we'll have all of eternity to talk about whether we were right or wrong. And it's good to hold strong convictions about prophecy. The Lord wants us to study and understand and experience he wouldn't have told us so much about the future if he didn't want us to come to some strong conclusions about it. 27% of the book. But we've got to be careful that we don't get into arguments and debates. They get personal. Jesus said that his followers should be able to recognize the signs of the times. What does that mean? Well, signs of the times are visible events maybe miraculous, that point to something much bigger, much beyond themselves. They help us to know what to look for and what to pay attention to. Jesus teaches that before he returns to judge the world, there will be clear signs ahead of that to prepare us. And when we see these specific things happening, we know that his return is imminent. When the disciples asked Jesus about the signs of the times, he didn't tell them, hey, don't worry about it. He didn't tell them, I'm not going to tell you because it's none of your business. He outlined for them general and specific signs of the end times that we will go through in detail. And after doing so, he told them about the parable of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer's near. See also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. It's important, though, that we understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his return. There will be a day in the future when Jesus physically and literally returns and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's his second coming. He will return not to die on the cross again, but to bring judgment to a world that has repetitively and consistently rejected him. By the time he returns, people will have been given a huge number of opportunities that we will go through to turn to God. When he speaks of signs of the times, he's speaking of the events right before he comes back physically to earth. However, the Bible also teaches, in my opinion and many others, that prior to that event, Jesus will not return to earth, but those of us who are Christ followers will rise up to meet him in the clouds. It's called the rapture. We're going to spend three weeks on it. 
the next major event to happen in our world is the rapture. There are no signs to precede the rapture. It is a signless event. It could happen before I finish tonight. Jesus told his disciples, be ready, be ready. It could come at any time. He told stories of bridesmaids with oil and all kinds of things to make sure you're ready because he could return whenever he decides to. And the only thing he says keeping him from returning is that there are people who have not yet surrendered to him. And he's being grace-filled to give them time. But the rapture can occur at any moment. And he told us to be ready. Dr. John Wolverd described it this way. There are all kinds of signs each year to let you know Christmas is coming. Lights everywhere, trees, decoration, music. Lots of signs about Christmas. But Thanksgiving can sneak up on you, can't it? There are no real signs for Thanksgiving. He says the second coming of Christ is like Christmas. Well, it will be in a lot of ways. Anyway, um... Lots of signs that should be obvious. But the rapture is like Thanksgiving. There are no signs, but when you see the signs of Christmas everywhere and, the, and Thanksgiving hasn't happened yet, you know Thanksgiving's coming really soon. That's what has many people in the church so aware because so many signs that point to the second coming of Christ are becoming so obvious in our culture. We're going to talk about it for the next two weeks that, that everybody, many people are going, wait a minute. That's Christmas, so Thanksgiving's got to be like quick, soon. So when we speak of signs of the times, we're speaking about what will happen during Jesus's, right prior to Jesus' return and what will be known as the Battle of Armageddon. We will learn that most of these signs will occur after the church has been raptured. In fact, the rapture of the church and the removal of the Holy Spirit from the world is, in my opinion, a key event that allows Satan to do what he needs to do. To persuade people. It'll be a catastrophic event for those who are still here. Sign, signs, everywhere sign, right? It's interesting that most Bible scholars recognize that there's not one single sign. There's nothing going on right now that has everybody freaked out about one sign. What's freaking people out is that the dashboard of end times is lighting up like a Christmas tree. And lights are blinking everywhere. Prophecies from years ago being fulfilled one after the next after the next to where you can essentially predict what's going to be in the news in another month or two. There are signs in the heavens, signs in nature, signs in the prophetic Jewish feasts. Everywhere you look, prophetic signs are just going up in neon. The stage is being set for many of the prophecies and predictions in Scripture to come to pass before our very eyes. Every day, the news reads like a prophetic book of the Bible. The story of end times will play out in physical events, but the real event is spiritual. Satan and Jesus are going to battle for your eternity and your soul and mine. So it's not surprising that the first sign we need to talk about... The first sign we need to explore is the way we think about the world. Because the Bible says that before the end times, there's going to be a complete global rethink. People who have held on to beliefs for years are going to rethink them and deny them. I'm going to spend all night tonight, not all night, y'all get out sooner. I'm going to spend a large part of my time tonight talking about this process of rethinking. Because it is the most subtle, it is the most harmful, and it is the sign that has catapulted to the front in the last 15 years. It has been embraced by the majority of people today. And it is what Jesus calls the wide road that leads to destruction. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness are seared. He says, look, one of the signs of the end times, people are going to start embracing the teachings of demons. What do demons teach? Everything against God. 
1 Timothy 2, 1. But understand this, in the last days will come times of difficulty. Will people be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Wow. 1 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Have you turned on the news? Have you noticed what's happening to Christians around the world? Have you noticed what's happening to the thinking process of Christians in our culture? In fact, in the last 15 years or so, apostasy, which we'll talk about in a minute, has exploded on the world scene. Apostasy is the rejection of the things of God. It's that simple. And what we've seen in our culture that tells everybody the end is coming is that there is a widespread apostasy worldwide. It's not just in one area, it's the entire world. People have devoted themselves to the teachings of demons, just as Jesus said. Satan's theology. I'm not talking about devil worshipers. I'm talking about good people. Really good people. People who want to do the best. People who love other people. People who think they're on the right track. People who care about other people. People who have a heart's desire for those around them. Good, wonderful people, but they're buying the lies of Satan. Especially the truth of God. And it'll cost them everything. If we don't tell them and they don't embrace the truth. They're following a new religion. A new faith. And most of them don't even know it. And more importantly... Satan has brought this new faith in so subtly and with such appeal that people don't even recognize it. It's like everything Satan does. False teaching, at first, it, it sounds good. It meets us where our need is. It fits with what we think should happen if we were God. It makes sense to us. Satan is not going to show up and present you with horns and things that you think are horrible. No, he's going to present you with ideas and thoughts because that's the only place he can attack you is in your mind. And he's going to try to get you to buy the idea that maybe, just maybe, you know better than God. And people who really honestly want to do good, they want to raise their kids, they want to raise their family, they want to have an impact on the world, they want to make this a better place, they're being lied to and deceived and they don't know it. So while we look often for physical signs on earth, God tells us that some of the warning signs are going to be the global acceptance of the lies Satan has placed in the minds of those who follow him. Satan has a very clear agenda. And yes, we believe in Satan. And yes, we believe the powers are real and they're obvious everywhere. So hopefully through this study you'll see that. And Satan is particularly concerned about the way people view God. He will soon be sending to earth his representative called the Antichrist. But first he has to prepare people to get willing and to be ready to receive him. To follow him. We live in a world that is being groomed for the arrival of and the acceptance of the lies that will welcome the Antichrist to earth. The scriptures predict that there will be a growing apostasy, a departure from the Lord as we get near to end times that will be like never before. It's not that people will doubt the scriptures. They will openly reject them and become intolerant of those who believe them. But before we dive into specific apostasies, I want to explain something to you about what it means to follow Jesus. We all have opinions that we've developed in our lives, through our experiences, through our relationships, through how we encounter other people. 
We hold on to those opinions often and have very strong feelings about them. They can be lifelong held beliefs about things like sexual preferences or relationships or ways to God or religion. What may surprise some of you who don't know or aren't following Christ is that you keep many of those opinions when you surrender to Jesus. It's only over time that the Holy Spirit begins to change the way you think about the world, begins to change the way you view both your activities and the activities of others. For instance, you may see nothing wrong with homosexuality or sexual intercourse outside of marriage. You may think that what two people do in the privacy of their home is up to them. You may think they'd be great parents. You may think that they're two people in love and nobody should block that. You should think they should be together in whatever way the two of them decide. You may believe you have no right to weigh in on their personal life. And we all have strong opinions on these topics, and so do many others. But here's what you may not know about Christians. Many of us left to our own opinions may actually agree with you. From our limited human understanding, some of these things make sense. Sounds loving. But let me explain why we can tolerate and love those who are gay or those who are living in relationships outside of marriage, but we can't agree with them. We can't agree that what they're doing is not a sin or that there won't be consequences. Tolerance does not mean approval. You see, when I surrendered to Jesus, I surrendered to embracing his truth instead of mine. I committed to agreeing with him even if I don't fully understand. I surrendered to the truth that he knows far more than I do. And he doesn't owe me any explanation about the truths that are in this word. I surrendered to the reality that while I may have strong opinions, his truth trumps my thoughts every time. He created me. He created everything I've ever seen or ever known. He reveals to us truth. He's the judge. What he has determined will be the standard. It's his universe, his rules, my surrender. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means that there's a truth in this book that's greater than anything you understand. And every time when you're not sure what to do, you go back to this book because it is the foundation of God's word to us. A key part of truly surrendering to Jesus is to agree to represent his truth. To embrace his truth and to recognize that if I disagree with any of his truths, the problem is with my understanding or my obedience, not him. He clearly, throughout Scripture, calls homosexuality a sin, but with the same vigor, he calls heterosexual activity outside of marriage a sin too. People have asked me often, what's your opinion on these things? And I tell them, I don't have one because my Lord has spoken. And because everything else in his scriptures are true, and because I've seen that his way over and over and over is the best way, I have no problem representing him instead of me. When I made Jesus Lord of my life, I became his servant, his representative, his ambassador, the Bible says. Just like the U.S. ambassador speaks for the, and represents the president, he sets aside his own personal opinions and speaks for the one who sent him. When I surrendered to Jesus, I, I agreed to submit to his. That's what it means to make him Lord of your life. In areas where God has spoken in his word, his truth is final. My opinion on these topics doesn't matter because I agreed to represent him. When it comes to truth revealed in the scripture, being a Christ follower is not about changing your opinions. It's about not having one. Jesus is not looking for our opinion. He's not asking for us to weigh in on his truth. He's looking for our surrender and our obedience. It's important to understand 
Because God is going to challenge during this series many people in the way they think. He's going to ask us to wake up and see what's really going on around us and to acknowledge that even though we're good people and even though we have good hearts and even though we we love our families and we hope for the best, we've been deceived. So with that said, let's dig a little deeper into apostasy. And let me show you what it means. Apostasy is a complete and total rejection of everything God stands for. It's a complete attack on the truth of God's moral standards, God's laws, God's truth, God's plans, God's message, God's people, and ultimately, God himself. It starts out like a cancer, slowly growing, and then builds, and before most people recognize it, they're in desperate need of resuscitation. 1 Timothy 4.1, I know... Now the Spirit expresses, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits? Teachings of demons? I, I've never been deceived by Satan like that. I don't go to Satan worship places. I'm not following him. What are you talking about? I don't think I'm rejecting God that much. But our feelings never really replace reality, do they? Jude 1.18, in the last time there will be scoffers. Following their own ungodly passions, it is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Matthew 24.10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This open, deliberate, willful willful rejection of the truth of the Bible is described in Scripture as a major characteristics of the last days of the church on earth. And it is a sign that it has become rampant and widespread in the last 15 years, particularly in the last five. Let me contrast for you the theology of God and the deception of Satan. I think through this exercise, you will see how subtly Satan has changed the view of many and how he has shifted global thinking when it comes to God. The apostasy that is relevant and pandemic in our world today is called humanism. God told us to wake up and pay attention when he's being denied. His truth is being denied or his existence is being denied. The warning sign goes off like a high beam when ideology dominates world discussions and decisions. The Judeo-Christian truths that have supported the world stage for the last 2,000 years are now rapidly being replaced with a new foundational philosophy that's becoming worldwide and universally accepted. And it's called humanism. It negates personal responsibility for sin promotes human wisdom, scientific proof, and the denial of the supernatural. Humanism replaces God with man. It denies the existence or influence of God, rejects anything supernatural. Everything is understood by the human mind, and faith is the collective power of humans. It looks to science for all explanations, elevates creation over any creator, trusts collective human effort to solve world issues, denies any absolute truth, anticipates utopia via human awareness, centers on individual freedom and expression, teaching not just tolerance but acceptance of almost anything any human can imagine. It is the doctrine of Satan. It is the exact same doctrine that caused him to fall from heaven and the same doctrine that he used to try to deceive Eve. You can be like God. God tells us that a key sign of end times is when this false ideology becomes widely accepted and the doctrine of God is denounced. It's happening in our world today exactly as it was predicted by the prophets thousands of years ago. It's a direct attack on the truth of God's and God, and God tells us there's no middle ground. You're either following Him and His truths, or you've been deceived. Let's look at what God tells us about ourselves. God tells us that we are created in His image, that we're deeply loved by Him, that we're deeply created with gifts, personalities, and passions. 
that he created us to have a relationship with him and that we have huge potential. We're created in his image and thus we have more value than any other created thing on earth. That human life is one of the greatest and most important gifts entrusted to us. God tells us that we are highly valued and deeply loved. That we're really great people. He loves us desperately, but we have one problem. We were born into a sin nature. And that sin nature came from man's attempt to be God. And that nature keeps us from being all that God wanted us to be. It keeps us out of relationship with him. Sin, as God defines it, is any action, decision, or thought that goes against what he's revealed as truth. God determines what a sin is. He's the judge. It's his universe. God teaches us that we must take personal accountability and responsibility for our sins, and we have to agree with him what a sin is and exactly what we've done. If we allow Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and the promises to forgive us, but we must agree with him first. That way we can learn from our sins, avoid repeating them, and reach the potential that he placed in us when he created us. He can't wipe out a debt that we haven't yet tallied. So the clear message of God is that we're really good people. And we're deeply loved. And we have sin issues that we have to own, confess, and repent of, and trust Jesus to take the punishment of. God just wants us to take responsibility for our decisions and trust him to guide us. We must humble ourselves and agree with God. God always teaches that he loves the sinner. He just hates sin. His love for us is truly unconditional. And so many people in our world can't wrap their mind around that. He loves us unconditionally. That means there is no condition where he won't love us. He does not, however, love our sin. And he wants us, he loves us so much, he wants to rid us of it. In fact, God says there are no bad people. Just good people who are being deceived by Satan. And they're living sinful lives. So the clear message of God is that we're good people, deeply loved. Every human, God says, no matter what they've done, can turn to Jesus. Confess their sins, turn away from the lies of Satan, and be saved. It's God's desire that nobody perishes and that all are saved. God tells us he deeply loves every person, but he also deeply hates sin. Because he sees what sin does to us. He sees downstream of that decision you made when you were with that other woman. He sees the broken families. He sees the hurt. He sees downstream. He's not trying to keep us within a rigid format. He's just trying to get us to follow him. He knows that we're good people. We can be deceived. He wants to try to help us, but his holiness requires that at some point there is a judgment and punishment for sin. Otherwise, he's not righteous. So he came and he paid the price for us. And he said, just believe. Just believe. Satan, on the other hand, teaches the exact opposite. God doesn't really exist. You can be your own God. You can define your truth. You can judge yourself. You have the power inside of you. You just need to unleash it. But if you do believe there's a God, he, and if he does exist, he doesn't love you, he's mad at you. Because you have repetitively over and over disappointed him, and he needs you to perform better. He expects you to be perfect because he's unrealistic, and he's going to punish you if you're not. You're not responsible for your decisions, and your opinion of sin is your truth. God can only love you if you're perfect, and nobody can be perfect. So if God does exist, he's rejected you because he has issues. In fact, he's in heaven right now judging you and critiquing everything you're doing. He wants to punish you, and he seems to find delight in it. Only an idiot would follow a God like that. Only those who are weak or unintelligent could believe the Bible. You are so much more qualified to be the God of your life. Why would you surrender to such a crazy God when you can live in freedom? God says that you aren't good enough, and you'll never measure up. God wants to take away your fun. 
Have you seen his anger problem? He wipes out people and he says he's coming back to punish you. You aren't the problem, he is. Those who embrace humanism sadly believe that God is their problem rather than their solution. It's the expression of pride and arrogance on their part that characterizes the one who's motivating them, which is Satan. Many, and this is the really sad part, who have embraced humanism never learn that they can be deeply loved separate from their actions. They haven't experienced the degree of God's unconditional love. They haven't experienced what it means, so they struggle trying to understand love. And if anybody points out anything to them that that maybe they need to look at, it's not that they're critiquing their actions, they're critiquing who they are as a person. It's a horrible way to look at life. Many do not embrace the idea that it's their decisions and actions that are being challenged for the sake of trying to help them. Not challenge who they are or their value as a person. God has already said they're enormously valuable. But they're insecure. And it drives them to believe that a critique of their action is a direct assault on who they are. Thus, efforts to guide them to take responsibility for decisions and actions are labeled as bullying, hate crimes, and intolerance. Humanists want to live in a world devoid of any criticism, any critique, or any correction of their actions, regardless of intent. Satan has deceived many to believe that you cannot call out a sin without hating the sinner, too. They don't understand that Christians don't hate them, they just hate what their sin's going to do to them because there's such a better way. It's the ultimate bondage for so many in our society. They cannot separate who they are from what they've chosen to do. So when anybody challenges their actions, they believe that that person must not only hate their action, but hate them. In addition, they project that onto other people. You're not a good person with an idea I disagree with. You're a bad person. Satan has effectively silenced any opposing voices regarding sin by claiming hatred and intolerance on those who call sin, sin. This ideology today is evident in political correctness. No one is responsible anymore for the choices they make. Sins get renamed and responsibility gets shifted to somebody else. Sins are renamed as diseases. Drunkenness becomes alcoholism. Sexual promiscuity becomes sexual addiction. Substance abuse becomes opiate dependence. Gluttony becomes obesity. Anger and violence are now an impulse control disorder. Sins are given softer, more acceptable names. Adultery is now having an affair. Homosexuality is being gay or lesbian. Fornication is just living together. Even the word sin is offensive today. It's now been renamed as a poor choice a lack of judgment, or a host of other terms that divert both responsibility and accountability. Now that's just the overview. Let's dive in a little more specifically. God tells us that he created man and woman, that he created us for one another, and that we form a perfect union that completes us as one and aligns us with God. Satan rejects this and says that we weren't created, rather we're some kind of cosmic accident that evolved into the greatest life form we can imagine. There's no God, so we don't need God to have created us. Satan says people can become and identify with any gender they desire. Not only can they choose their sex, but if they have no personal responsibility for that choice, because they were born flawed, because God, if he does exist, made a mistake, and man needs to correct it for God. Anybody who calls their sexual orientation a sinful choice is intolerant and assaulting them personally. God tells us that he created marriage between a man and a woman who are followers of Christ. God tells us that sexual intercourse is reserved for a man and woman in the covenant foundational relationship of marriage. It's a spiritual and physical union that celebrates commitment and love for one another that reflects our God. It's a holy experience that celebrates love, our love for our spouse, and our love for God and his love for us. 
It is the communion experience of marriage shared only between a man and a woman, and it unites us with the heart of God. It is God's way of bringing children into a family dynamic and avoiding innumerable diseases, relational stresses, and unwanted pregnancies. Satan rejects this. He says that marriage is an archaic, unnecessary covenant. But if desired, marriage can be between any number of people of any number of sexual orientations. It's not a spiritual union. It is a legal one. Satan rejects and promotes homosexuality, bisexuality, heterosexual intercourse outside of marriage, sexual exploration, sex with children, and any other of enlightened sexual expression. It is a physical act with no spiritual component. Two consenting adults can do whatever they want to do. If you have a fetish or perversion, you must have been born that way because God, again, made a mistake, and you're not accountable for it. All you're accountable for is expressing the way you are. And anyone who disagrees or doesn't like that or calls it a sin must not be a good person. They must not only tolerate it, but they must accept it and approve of it as well. God tells us that there's an absolute truth revealed in His Word, and if we live by it, we'll be blessed. Satan says we can develop our own truth. And that everything's relative, and that your truth is what you decide it to be, and whatever you want to make it. And anybody that suggests you should be accountable to God is intolerant. God tells us that human innocent life is to be highly protected and sustained at all costs. Every person that he created, he knew in the womb. They were born, and to take innocent life, particularly the life of a child, is sinful. Human life is to be valued highly, more valuable than any other animal on the planet, because we have the image of God, and in us, he has built us. Satan says we should decide if a child lives or dies, that every woman has a choice, and there's no consequences for that decision. That humans, animals, and all created things have equal value, and animals should have the same protection as humans. God tells us that Jesus is the only way to restore our relationship with him. Satan says we need no relationship with God because we can do it on our own. We can be our own God. If there is a God, there are many paths that lead to him, and people can choose any one of them. The greatest sin of our time is intolerance and rejecting all the other ways that people can come to God because those Christians are just too narrow and too restricted. God tells us that we should place our trust in him, that he alone is all that we need and all that we should depend on. Satan says we need to put our trust and our security in ourselves and that humans don't need God and that we can find security in money and power in our nation, our military, our scientific understanding, our inner power. It's the human that should be celebrated, not God. God says that we have a limited understanding of what's going on in our world and that his ways are higher than our ways and there are many things too wonderful for us to understand. There's too many things that can't be explained by a limited human mind. Satan says if we can't explain it, then it's not real. When it comes to God, nothing supernatural is possible. If we can't explain it, God didn't do it. And if human minds can't understand it, it's a myth. So we will see in the weeks to come that the Antichrist, who will be Satan's primary representative on earth, will mock and stand against everything God stands for. Just as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Antichrist will be the visible representation of Satan in human form. Just before the Antichrist arrives on the scene, Satan must first prepare people to accept him. And humanism is the process, the foundational belief, and the doctrine of the church of those who follow him. The Antichrist will bring a one-world government, a one-world currency, a one-world religion of tolerance, one-world military, and will promise utopia and peace. It'll celebrate man and denounce God. He'll promise world peace, but he'll turn on the world and destroy everyone and everything in the process. Humanism is a deception, and it's growing today. And millions of good people with really good hearts who really want to do the right thing, who love their children, love their family, love this world, have bought a lie they're not even aware of. Jesus says, how will they know if we don't go tell them? They've been cleverly deceived by a very good presentation. In fact, God tells us that in the end times, even those who are called Christians will embrace lies and try to spiritualize their sin. 
He tells us that in end times, humanism is going to invade the church. Churches will try to blend the truth of God and the lies of humanism in an attempt to stay relevant, to appease people, to pad their coffers, and to appear open-minded, tolerant, and enlightened. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, he says. And then Jesus gives a sober warning to those who are in the church. Those who refuse to stand on the truth and embrace humanism. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In other words, the one that follows my truth. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Satan's humanistic influence on our world is obvious. It's really simple. Everything God stands for, he says is a lie. God calls it true. He says it's lie. God says it's good. He says it's evil. God tells us to be careful of it. He tells us to embrace it. God tells us it's a sin. He relabels it. Everything that God values, Satan devalues, including you and me. And since the time is near for the return of Jesus, it's important that you know who you're truly following. And if you're not following Jesus, after listening to those examples... I'd rather you hear it from me now than to hear Jesus say he never knew you when it's too late. What makes this unique now and a flashing sign of our times is Satan's philosophy is now being accepted and promoted globally as the norm, particularly in the younger generations. And global apostasy is a warning sign that the end is near. But it's only one of many. Next week, we're going to look at several others. Any one of these occurring in our world should be an indicator, but we're going to see from the next few weeks that the warning lights are flashing all over the place. The only thing holding back the power of Satan in our world today is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Christians are calling out the lies of Satan and the destructive ideology of our society. And once the rapture of God's people occurs, Satan will have unopposed spiritual oversight of the world. The primary presence of the Holy Spirit will have left the planet again. Humanists will celebrate that those intolerant Christians have been punished and removed from the earth. And now they can have a global universal religion, which they've wanted all along. My goal in this series is to get you to pay attention. To look around at what's happening in your life. To pay attention to the news. You may not like it. You may wish things were different. You may want to deny it. You may want to completely embrace it. Regardless of what you think about it, it doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign and what he says will happen, will happen. Your opinion about all this will not change it. But it definitely could change you. Sometimes life is like we've entered a dark theater. And realizing we're coming near the end of a play with several acts. We didn't write it. We didn't ask to be participants in the play. But we find ourselves that way. And yet it's evident to us that the drama is drawing near the last act. Even though we didn't see the beginning of the play. Even though we don't really understand. We can look back at the plot and the direction. And we can somehow know the final act is coming. There are signs in every play that the final scene is being set up. And if those are occurring, we can be very certain that the last act is just ahead. So what events, what characters, what plot will bring world history to its predicted climax? Will we be wise enough to see it coming? Will we pay attention to the signs? Will we be ready? And the only way we can be ready is to know about the last act. And in the coming weeks, if the Lord's willing and we're still here, 
we're going to examine some of those events that we know will be based on biblical prophecy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Let's pray. God, there are evil forces in the heavenly realm. It's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to think about. That's what you told us. Everything in your book has been right, and I have no doubt the future is going to be right too. You told us to wake up, to pay attention. And God, I don't know people within the sound of my voice, I don't know what they've been following. But they're good people. God, would you open their eyes to the deception that is leading them down a path of destruction? God, in whatever way you can do it, will you wake them up? Will you help them to see the lies? Will you help all of us, God? We need you desperately. We are being bombarded with lies. We're being bombarded with a false truth. God, we need you to help us. So God, would you help me to get out of the way and just do your work in the hearts of our people? Would you allow us over the next few weeks or months as we study this amazing story to have a very real encounter with you and to see ourselves the way you really see us? We are deeply loved. But we have a sin issue we have to own. And we have a Savior who wants to pay for it. Help us, God, to surrender to him and to trust him with our future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.